Well, here in Colossians 3 and 4, we've got the, uh, the practical part of Paul's letter here to the Colossians. He starts there in 3 verse 1, If then you were raised together with Christ, seek the things that are above. And this is typical of the structure of his letters. There's sort of pure theology, if you like, which is what you've got in Colossians 1 and 2, and then the practical section. Romans is perhaps the, uh, the clearest example, where you've got Paul talking about grace and uh, about the atonement and about justification being counted right, and then the turning point there is chapter 12, verse 1, where he's, he starts to say, on this basis, therefore, let us give our, our lives as a living sacrifice to God, and the rest of the letter is all practical. And in uh, Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, you, you see this uh, the same. It's not always uh, direct 50-50, that 50% of the letter is doctrinal and 50% is, uh, is sort of practical, but generally that is the, uh, there, there is a break. He starts with a theory and then he turns into what you could call ethical demands on the basis of the doctrine that he's preached. And that is why I suppose doctrine is important. That's why it matters what we believe, because in the end it will issue in our way of life. So then he's alluding there to baptism, uh, chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 1 where he says that if then you were raised together with Christ, and that's the very language of Romans 6 about baptism, Jesus has risen and ascended to heaven, and therefore we also should have a mind that revolves around the sphere of heavenly things. Set your, things, set your mind, verse 2, on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you died, now that is baptism. Uh, you died and your life is hid with Christ in God, and Christ is going to appear, and we will also be manifested with him in glory. Therefore, verse 12, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, etc. <clears throat> so then, they had to be reminded of the implications of their baptism. They had to be exhorted to, to live out in practice what they were by status. And by status we are dead with Christ. We died. And therefore we are to put to death in practice all those, all those sinful things. And this is uh, an exhortation that's really relevant to all of us who have been baptized perhaps many years, that we are to, to live out in practice the status that we entered then. Now, he speaks in verse 7, for example, as if in all those bad things you also walked in the past when you lived in those things. But he, so he's implying that you don't do that anymore, and yet he's saying, look, verse 5, mortify, put to death those things. But then he says in verse 7, well, you used to live like that, but now you don't. So that, that's what I mean, that he, he's saying that you, in status, are counted by God as perfect, as if you, haven't, you don't do those things. You are counted as if you're Jesus. So therefore, in practice, don't do them. So he says in verse 10 that because, well, verse 9, <clears throat> don't lie to one another because you've put off the old man with his deeds. This again is baptism, that the old man was crucified. Here he describes it as a, a change of clothes. You put off those clothes and you've put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. 
Where there cannot be, and I'm reading from the RV, where there cannot be Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, holy and beloved, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, etc. Now, have we put this on or not? Well, he says we, we have, in a sense, we have, verse 10, put on the new man. But therefore, verse 12, put on, therefore, all these things. Do you see what I'm saying? That we have put on the new man in baptism, that it was a change of clothes. <clears throat> but therefore, in practice, we are now to put on, in practice, all those lovely things of kindness, humility, meekness, forbearance, forgiveness, etc., and so this is the challenge isn't it to perceive that really we have stood condemned before God in the dark this is the metaphor of Romans and yet we have been declared right which is what justification means we have had the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us and therefore we are not only sort of let off the hook but we are actually declared to be as spotless and righteous as he is now that's quite amazing and we can never be just passive to that the more you perceive the truth of the fact that you are now declared right are looked at as if you are right and without spot before God then that will motivate us in practice to act like that it's rather like if you act too to a child as if they are you know, good and, and the rest of it, that they will end up feeling like that and behaving like that. You tell a child all the time you're no good and you're this and you're that and the other, then that is how they end up behaving. These things become self-fulfilling prophecies. And that is nowhere truer, I think, than in the whole idea of us being counted righteous because we are in Christ. And if only you can feel that, that he who is in one sense so far away, located in heaven, you know, trillions of whatever light years away, he looks upon us as if we are perfect. And God looks at us as if we are his very dear son Jesus, because we are in Christ. And this idea of being in Christ is a huge theme with, uh, with Paul. You can see, therefore, the, the crucial importance of baptism. And all the way through here, as I said, in these, uh, this first half of Colossians 3, he's alluding to baptism all the time. I would even say that uh, in verse 13, where he says, Forgive one another, uh, even as the Lord forgave you. As if there was a, a one-off point. I think that's what the uh, Greek tense there implies. That there was a one-off point when you were forgiven. And that one-off point, I, I suspect, is, uh, is baptism. And so he, he goes on then, 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, there was a tradition that the Gospel of Mark had to be memorized by baptismal candidates in the first century. And the Gospel was the Gospel that you have in the Gospel records as they went around teaching that message uh, as the years went on and Jesus didn't come back, eventually, I guess, they, under inspiration, wrote down what they typically explained the gospel as. And those gospel records begin where probably many of us would begin, with the promises to Abraham, with the idea of uh, the historical thread that uh, runs through the Bible about Jesus. 
they talk about the genealogies or John talks about the word being in the beginning and then becoming flesh um, and they end basically with an appeal for baptism which is probably where we would end up as well and so then the gospel was the gospel and the rest of the New Testament, Colossians for example this is all interpretation, this is extra Uh, but the gospel is the gospel that we have in let's say the gospel according to Matthew or Mark or Luke or John so when he says let the word of Christ dwell in you richly I think he's saying keep on reciting it to yourself because the vast majority of Christians in the first century were illiterate I mean, literacy rates in, uh, in Palestine were reckoned to be as low as 2%, and in the, in the Roman Empire generally, 5%. And don't forget that the majority of converts to Christianity were the poor of this world, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And so, generally, literacy rates in the, the Brotherhood would have been very low. And so, he was, he's exhorting, I think, there in verse 16, keep on repeating to yourselves the word of Christ, the, uh, the message about him, which was there in the Gospels, which maybe you memorized before you were baptized. Don't, uh, <clears throat> don't just forget all that, but keep on going over it, because that is the root, ultimately, of your motivation. So then, we are Christ. We are counted <clears throat> as if we are him. And he says in verse 15 that we are called in one body. And that means that we are not just individually called. That Duncan's called and then two years later Alison's called and then three years later Dimitri is called or whatever. We are in one sense called in one body. Salvation is in a body. And whose body? In the body of Jesus. Because Jesus was the one who had our nature, was completely our representative, and who died for us, and I understand that to to mean really as our representative, and then rose again. And by baptism into his body, we therefore are counted as him. And you've got the same in Ephesians 2.16, where we're told that... uh, Jesus reconciled Jew and Gentile both in one body unto God through the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. We were reconciled to God in one body. And so this is why we have to demonstrate in the course of our lives after baptism our connection with that one body. And we we do that in baptism as a one-off, and we do it, I think, in an ongoing sense by partaking of the, the bread, Um, to show our sharing in the one body of Jesus. And, of course, we do it, above all, not just by a ritual, but in a life that is committed, as Paul's was, to fellowship within that one body, to care, to love uh, within that body, to distributing to others within that body, etc., And because that one body is Jesus, he says in verse 11, as I said, reading from the RV, there cannot be Jew and Gentile. There cannot be, because there's only one. And so, one of the the big things, I think, that has damaged so many believers, particularly, I think, in our generation, is the division which there is within that body. But 
that's only of course from our perspective here on earth from God's perspective there is only one body because there's only one Jesus that's why it's um, <clears throat> it's bizarre really to, to to argue that you know we cannot break bread with you even though we accept you are baptized into the one body and we call you brother and sister but we will not fellowship you this is nonsense because from God's point of view that bread which we now break which we now partake in there is only one loaf as Paul says in 1 Corinthians there is only one loaf there's only one bread one loaf one Jesus and each of us partake in that so it's bizarre to partake of your little bit of the loaf and then say hey you you can't take uh, you can't have this loaf absolutely bizarre that cannot be the case Paul says in verse 11 in the RV, there cannot be Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, because Christ is in all, that is, in all who are in his body. And so, if we are in Christ, there cannot be that division. Now, there is division from an earthly perspective here on earth. But we are to try to be uh, the Christian round here, as it were. We are to see things differently. We are to try to see things from God's perspective. And even if people say, well, you can't come here, or we, we won't fellowship with them, or whatever. Okay, that is their immaturity. Um, but we are to be those who have the, the perspective of Jesus. And of course we lament that, but there's often very little you can do about it. Um, but to just ensure that in our hearts... We feel, as we break bread, that we are fellowshipping with all who are in the body. And there is a useful, I think, uh, comment about this that was made many years ago by Emil Brauner. And he talks about the visible church and the invisible church. That ultimately the body of Christ is one, that's what he's saying. And that it's made up of people from all kinds of uh, different backgrounds and maybe even different denominations. But... God knows who are his, and God is the one who ultimately defines what is acceptable baptism into the body and what isn't. But then there's the uh, the visible church, which is made up of all sorts of fellowships, all uh, with the barriers against each other, and their own quirks of understanding of this and that, and their positions on this, that, or the other. That's the visible church, and it's a pretty pretty sad sight, really. It's a shattered cross unfortunately it's a shattered body but the invisible church is the true church which is made up of true believers who've been baptized into the lord and are in his body from all sorts of different uh, fellowships or, or whatever you want to call them and that i find a comfort because it isn't so then that a house divided against itself cannot stand uh, that is true from a human perspective but if you see what I'm saying from God's perspective that is not the case so then it was a community that was saved out of Egypt they were not dragged one by one it was salvation in a body and so it was really with Jesus that it, it is still salvation in a body and that's why in Ephesians 4, when Paul lists the one, uh, the one faith and the different things that make up that one faith, let's go back there to Ephesians 4, and as you'd be aware, Ephesians and Colossians are very similar in their structure. Um, <clears throat> okay, Ephesians 4, verse 4, There is one body, one spirit, 
one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, etc. Now, interestingly, the first thing he puts in the list is one body. And I think that is very significant. That the first thing in the list is one body. It's as if he sees this as extremely important. And that's why when he starts writing to the Corinthians, instead of chapter 1 verse 1 saying, guys, this is sort of the, uh, the letter of Duncan to the Corinthians, um, you know, guys, you're getting drunk on the wine at the breaking of bread. Guys, you are committing disgusting sexual immorality, it seems, even at the very moment of the breaking of bread. Guys, you don't even believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Guys, you don't even believe in the resurrection of the body. Guys, you've lost the plot. He actually starts quite differently. He says, guys, I hear, well, he doesn't say guys, but you know, he says, guys, I hear that you are divided. This is awful. Very interesting, his perspective there. And uh, it is a sort of theory of mine, really, that there are things that we might shrug at and think are not too bad that for God are awful. And there are other things that maybe our conscience strikes us over or that we might think are particularly bad, which maybe God sees more generously. Just to bear that in, uh, in mind. So then, coming on now to uh, chapter 4, and you know, Paul's always so, uh, so positive here, and he, he says, and it, it seems that he's writing this from Rome, from prison, he says, verse uh, 3 of chapter 4, Pray for us also that God may open unto us a door for the word, an opportunity to preach, to speak the mystery of Christ, Verse 4, that I might make it manifest as I ought to speak. Now just uh, bear in mind what he's saying here. Please, you pray for us that a door may be opened for us. Now, Paul is all the time alluding to the words of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. I've made this point many times, that almost once every two or three verses at least I have discerned an allusion or a quotation from the words of the Gospels. And I'm sure it's much higher than that. He was totally permeated with the Spirit and the words of Christ. So, what's he alluding to here? Jesus says that prayer is like knocking on the door and it will be opened to you. If you pray, he says, that's like you're knocking on the door and it will be opened to you. But here Paul is clearly alluding to that, but he puts it slightly differently. He says, you pray, and the door will be opened to us. So he'd really thought through the words of the Lord there. We can pray for others, so that things might open up for them. Prayer can so easily actually become a very selfish experience. I'm praying for my needs. But here he he asked them to pray for him so that a door would be opened to him. And he uses uh, other other times this idea of a door opening as uh, a picture really of the opportunity to preach. And he he says in 1 Corinthians 16 that a great door has been opened to me in Ephesus, so I'm going to stay in Ephesus a bit longer uh, to, to follow up on that. So then, we should be praying every day for meetings with people, for doors to be opened. But 
he, say, he says, pray for us that God would open to us a door for the word. The door of utterance, as it is in the AV, is definitely not right. Uh, the, the idea is definitely to open unto us a door for the word. It's as if the word, that is the word of the gospel, is standing there and there's a shut door. And he says, please pray that the Lord would open unto us a door for the word. So he's identifying himself personally with the word of the gospel. And of course that is how it must be, that we are identified with the gospel. It's not just something that we're doing, uh, as it were, separate from ourselves. And he may possibly uh, be implying that he feels a weakness in himself as for that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. It's almost as if he, uh, he feels that he ought to be witnessing more powerfully. And who of us would not feel the same, does not feel the same? But I just love this about Paul, that he says to them, pray that I, I do better in this. And we can certainly do that for each other. And he says in that context, verse 5, walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming the time. Buying up the opportunities, the RV margin says. So then, yes, that is, I think, a, a lesson to us to, to use time better. And we live in a world where you can fritter your life away when you are old before you know it. And what have you got to show for it? A zillion buttons pressed on a keyboard. But what have you really got to show for your life? And I, I, I really do exhort us to be careful how much time you waste online. And to be careful about how you use your, your life. Redeem the time. And in fact he's quoting here from the Septuagint of Daniel 2 verse 8. Where Nebuchadnezzar tells the wise men that they want to redeem the time because you know that the decree for your execution has gone out from me. And there's actually, this can be your homework, quite a few other allusions in Colossians 4 to, uh, to Daniel. The idea of captivity, earnest prayer, thanksgiving, making manifest wisdom to the world as we ought to, walking in wisdom in the eyes of the world, etc. So, if you remember how it was there that Nebuchadnezzar had given this decree, you're all going to die, and there was a frantic running around. And Daniel says, look, let's, by all means, let, let's, let, just, let's, please, just give us a little bit of time. Uh, I'm going to pray to God, get the interpretation from him of his word, and then go and preach that word. And there was a spirit of frantic urgency to do those three things, to pray to God, to understand his word, and to share that word with, with, with the Gentiles, with Nebuchadnezzar. And there was a frantic urgency to save their own lives. Now, I'm not saying that our steel-willed uh, management of our own time brings us salvation. It's by grace in the end. But what I'm saying is that, I'm saying what Paul is saying, redeem the time, buy up the opportunities, and don't let your life slip away between your fingers with nothing to show for it. And finally, I'd just like to conclude with what I think is um, <clears throat> a pretty lovely little comment from Paul in verse 11. He talks about Jesus, who is called Justice, and others who are of the circumcision. And the circumcision means, uh, I think it's used in a technical sense in the New Testament, to mean the circumcision party. Those who believe that 
uh, circumcision was necessary for salvation, although they were Christians. And as you know, Paul had fought against those people, suffered from them. Um, You can even make a case that the circumcision party within the church were in league with the temple powers in Jerusalem and persecuted Paul. He had a huge amount of grief with this circumcision party within the church. He calls them Galatians. He he says, I wish they'd uh, cut their own private members off, emasculate themselves. He's really angry with them. He's so hurt by them. And he says, these guys, these brethren who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, men that have been a comfort unto me. Now, isn't that amazing? I talk about the body of Christ and unity within the body. He's saying that people who had a very different understanding of the gospel and, in fact, a wrong understanding of the gospel and were associated with those who had worked against him and those he had so much anger with, Paul says, those brethren have actually been a comfort unto me and they are my fellow workers towards God's kingdom. Now, what an example. And how on earth could he come to that uh, realization? Only by repeatedly meditating on the fact that we are one body. That all of us who were baptized into Jesus, who have trusted into him, who are going to live together forever, there cannot be Jew nor Gentile, circumcision party, uncircumcision party, all names and parties are, are illegal, are outlawed, are, don't exist. Because we are redeemed together in one body by the cross.